invite you to take your Bibles and let's open it to Psalm 122. 122, and this will be officially our last sermon in the sermon series, Psalms for the Anxious, um, because the last couple of weeks um, have given us a lot of reasons to be anxious about, things to be anxious about, um, the pandemic, the riots, and therefore we thought it best just to pause our series in Ephesians for a while and just to study a few Psalms together. And um, the Psalms basically have one answer for anxiety, and that is look to God. Look to his attributes, meditate and truly believe in who he is. Um, it doesn't always mean that God will take away our struggles and troubles and trials, but that he would use them to sanctify us and make us more like his son, Jesus. And today, um, we're just going to look at Psalm 122 and just study the first two verses together. But let's read the whole psalm and see what it says. Hear now the words of the living God. The Song of Ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are truly, truly thankful to have an open Bible before us and open hearts within us to hear what you want to tell us through your word. Father, please reveal our hearts to us, even in this, this sermon and through your word and by your spirit. I pray that if we, if we see something in us that is painful or reminds us of our sin, that we won't be discouraged by that, but thank you for that, so that we will turn to Christ, the only Savior, the only one that can cleanse us and give us a new heart. So Father, please teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope even as we were reading the psalm that, you, that your heart could resonate with verse 1 when it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I believe this psalm is critical and important for us physically gathering as a church. Today, we are faced with a serious issue that is a serious threat to the life and the health of the church today. It, there's an unfortunate, unbiblical view that is slowly creeping its way into our thinking and understanding in our hearts with, regard, with regards to the very nature of what church is. And it simply is this temptation. Why go to church if I can simply watch church online? Why make an effort to physically gather when we can simply watch the entire service at the comfort of our own homes on a screen? Now, I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that there are times to rather stay at home and watch the service online when you are sick or when it makes sense not to come or when you can't walk or you're in serious pain or whatever the circumstance might be. There are good times to stay at home and watch, and that's why we still will continue to stream our services 
because it is a great blessing and we should thank God for that blessing to be able to do that. But I'm scared that the following proverb might be all too true for many, many Christians today. And it's one of my favorite, favorite proverbs in the whole book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22 verse 13 says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Okay, think of, think of that proverb for a moment. The excuse sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? We're in Africa. There's lions everywhere. Oh, that's what the Americans think. Okay, so... <laughs> There's lions. We're riding on elephants. It's dangerous. I can't work. I can't stand up and go and find a job. I'm going to die. So you're 35 and still living with your parents, right? I cannot go work. It's dangerous. So the sluggard just stays home. And have you thought of that word sluggard? Have you ever heard that word used? It's like someone that's described like a slug. Have you ever seen how fast a slug moves, right? It's like... That's, but the sluggard is the one making this excuse. It's the sluggard that says, I cannot go because it's scary outside. And sometimes, beloved, I, I'm scared that that is our excuse as well. That we're not coming to church as a cover-up for our laziness, as a cover-up for our selfishness, as a cover-up for our lack of love for God and our lack of love for one another. Underneath the excuses is actually a heart that doesn't really want to go to church at all. Because it's just too much effort. It's just, even just now on my way here, uh, we live in Clarksdorp and the drive here is about 30, 40 minutes. It was 40 minutes of constant screaming in the car with Alakai and my children. It was putting the nappies on and there's chaos and you're tripping over the toys and you're trying to get the kids into the car and you're kicking the dog on, on, for accident, on accident, and then it's everything chaos and you just feel like, wouldn't it just be easier to just stay at home? <laughs> like, just stay at home and... But no, I believe we need this. We need this eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball love, contact with one another. We need to hear one another sing. We need to hear our voices wash over us as we sing over about Jesus and who he is. But I think this mentality has become part of the Christian mindset. I cannot go to church. The Rona will be there. I cannot go. I'm going to die in the streets. Meanwhile, that same Christian goes to the shops, goes to the malls, visit friends, visit families, hugs people. <laughs> but suddenly, at, when it comes to church, the Rona is hyperactive. But staying away from corporate worship is because of convenience or because of our fear will have detrimental effects on our spiritual lives. That's why I've included this psalm and under the Psalms for the Anxious. Because I do believe that one of our major contributing factors to our anxiety and our sadness and our depression is isolation. Is that we are all alone. Remember what God said to Adam in the very beginning the first time he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And the first time he says, it is not good, is when it was referring to Adam's loneliness. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. But why not? Why, have you ever thought, why is it not good for man to be alone? Because God is not alone. God was never alone. From all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
was a community within themselves. Perfect love, perfect fellowship with himself. God is a God in community. And so God makes mankind in his own image to be mankind, to be part of community. We need this physical flesh and blood families. Now, just to say, as a general rule, not always, as a general rule, people are meant to get married. People are meant to have kids and to be a family unit. That solves our need for companionship and our need for lonely, our loneliness. But what is true in the physical sense is also true in our, our spiritual lives. We need the, the Christian family. God says over every Christian, it is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to carry your burdens alone. It is not good for you to be isolated. It is not good for you to substitute the uncomfortable, difficult, awkward gathering of the church with a flat screen that cannot respond to your words, that cannot respond to your prayer requests, that cannot respond to you unpacking your burdens on another brother or sister. Well, and that's why we all study this psalm as well. We'll look at an attitude of an Old Testament saint, David, when he was called to go to the house of the Lord, how his heart responded to the public worship of God. And we can almost see within his response, we should use that as a mirror for our own hearts to test ourselves where we are at. If our hearts resonate or echoes the, the same passion that David had in Psalm 22. Now, as we read the Psalm, we realize quickly that it's a love poem over Jerusalem over the city of Jerusalem and the house of the Lord. It's like a husband writing a love poem over his house. Now, it's not that when a husband does that, he's not saying, yo, I really love the bricks and I really love the door and I really love the windows. No, what makes his house so amazing is the people living inside the house. It's the wife and the children that makes his house so amazing. And in the same way, David says, I'm celebrating Jerusalem because of the people inside of it, because God is there. You see, David is really in love with the Lord and in love with God's people. And that's why he's singing over Jerusalem. And if you look at the title, this is another Song of Ascents. It's a Song of Ascents. So if you remember, we already did two Psalms, um, song, Songs of Ascents. And this, just to remind you what, they, what this means is these Psalms were memorized and sung as the pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. So these psalms were memorized and sung as the pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem for the annual feast. And the flow of thought from the previous psalm to this one is very interesting. Remember Psalm 121 verse 1? It's also a song of ascent and it says, I will lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? So remember Psalm 121 is like a traveling psalm. It's, they see the hills from far away and they say, where, how will we get there? The, the, the road is so dangerous. Where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So Psalm 121 was the psalm that the pilgrims would have memorized and sung as they made their way to Jerusalem. And Psalm 122 is now they've arrived. Look at verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So now David and the pilgrims have arrived at Jerusalem and they say, we've made it. They look back over their dangerous and difficult journey and they say, it was worth it because now we are at the gates. And now they're looking forward to worshiping God together with his people in his house. 
So even though we could look at this whole psalm together, we're only going to look at the first two verses. We're only going to study verses 1 and verse 2 together. So we'll first look at the joy of going to the house of the Lord and then the joy of arriving home. So the joy of going and the joy of arriving. So let's first consider the joy of going, going to the house of the Lord. And notice first this joy of David, what he felt when others took him by the hand, as it were, and said, let us go. Look at verse 1 again. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Notice there was no hesitation over the reaction of his heart. There was an instant reaction of joy and jubilation in his heart when someone invited him, took him by the hand and said, let us go together to worship our God at his house and the reason why he had that instant reaction was because they had a shared joy. When you love something already, let's say like reading great novels, let's say that's a great passion of your life or your heart, and someone else says to you, I really, really love reading novels. <laughs> it's almost instantaneous. What? You too? Wow, me, I love novels too. And there's just a shared the reason why you're so glad when someone says that to you is because you have the same love, the same joy. And in a similar way, David is glad because they love the same God. In the same way, when, when you love the Lord and someone says to you, let us go to the house of the Lord, your heart should be reacting in joy because you love God and you love the people there. Because you have a mutual love, you have a shared joy in God. Wow, you also love the Lord? You also serve him at church? Wow, me too. Let's go together. <laughs> so, beloved, what we learn in verse 1, it is too low for a Christian to say, you must go to church. That's too low. We must say, you must want to want to go to church. <laughs> okay? It's like the, the wife who's upset with her husband for not doing the dishes. And after a while, the husband decides, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the dishes. And he says to his wife, okay, I'll do the dishes. He says, no. He says, what's wrong? I want you to want to do the dishes, <laughs> right? I want you to see that I'm struggling. I need your help. Don't wait for me to beg you on my knees. Please just help, right? Okay, I'm not saying that's always good communicate. I'm just using an illustration, okay? But in the same way, although, to clarify, although there will be many times when we will have to do things that you don't want to do because it's the right thing to do, if there is never joy in coming to, to church, if there's never any sense of excitement to come together to sit under the preaching of the word, to sing and let the songs wash over us, if it's merely duty, if it's merely something you do because you must, God is not pleased. He's not pleased with that. We sometimes forget that God doesn't just hear the words of our lips, but also the words of our hearts. God hears the, the moaning, complaining, and the murmuring of our hearts. What goes on inside of us is audible to God. He sees it. He hears it. That's why we should strive not merely to worship God in outward form, but that our hearts will be in it. And I think here's an easy test for you to see whether your heart resonates with David or not. What was your reaction, if you can think back with me, when the president said, 
churches are allowed to gather again. <laughs> okay. Right, there's a, there's a visible... Right? If you could try to take yourself back to that moment, um, what was the first thing that came up in your mind and your heart? Was, was there any joy? Was there any anticipation to see each other again, to, to sing together again, to be back with your brothers and sisters? Now, if you are anything like me, you will know that your heart is a complicated thing. Okay? True joy can often be mixed with sadness and not wanting to do it. So just to open my heart to you, although I was very glad to be able to go back, I, I kind of have to, right? I'm, I, I can't say as a pastor. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay. But at the same time, so there was, there was a joy and there was an excitement. And at the same time, there wasn't a joy because I know this week is going to be hectic. I'm going to have to get all the sheep back into the sheepfold. I'm going to have to organize all the rosters again. And I'm going to just have to work extra harder and sleep less and do all those things. And so do you, do you see what I'm saying? So perhaps that was true for you. You might have had a tinge of joy or there was joy, but there was also maybe something else that made you not glad over physically gathering. But that's besides the point. My question is, was there anything? Was there real joy? Although complicated joy... Was there in you something that was looking forward to gather again physically? So that question, you might have an open picture of your own heart this afternoon, where your heart is at. If there was no joy, if there was no excitement to be with God's people again, then I really think it's fair to say, as a diagnosis, that you have a sick soul that your soul is sick or that you have a spiritual decay. Because that's not how it's supposed to be. Our heart is supposed to be at this place where David says, I was glad. Why I say that your soul is sick if you were not looking forward to go to church or gather like this is because your, your love for Jesus' church is an accurate reflection of your love for him himself, for Jesus himself. Listen to 1 John 4, verse 20 to 21. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So love for your brother, love for the church, love for your sister in Christ is the evidence that you love the God you cannot see. They go together. They are two sides of the same coin. But here's the good news. There's only one doctor of the soul. If you have a sick soul, if you have a decaying soul, there is someone that can cure you of that malady. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again to these words. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So love for others begins with resting in Christ's love for you. By coming to Christ and opening your heart to him, humble repentance, say, Lord, I do not love your people as I should because I do not love you as I should. Lord, the coldness of my heart, here is the problem. Here is the wound. It's not the, my circumstances. It's not the trials outside of me. It's me. I am the problem, Lord. This heart is the issue. The slow fade, the prone to wandering, Lord, I feel it. This is the problem. Lord, restore me. 
Restore me back to you and then to your church. So that might be one reason why you, why you were not glad is that your soul was sick. But there might be another reason why you were not glad to come back to church. And that is because you might, know, might not know Jesus at all. You're not just sick, you're dead. That's what the Bible, the, the, the way the Bible describes us before we are saved, it's not just, you know, limping or crawling. It says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people can't feel, dead people can't react, dead people can't sacrifice themselves for the good of others. They are just dead. That's all they can do. But Christ is not only just a good doctor, he can raise the dead. He can raise the dead. He can give you new life. He can take out this heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh because he came to die for you, for sinners like you, for sinners like me who have cold heart, hearts, hearts. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for those who had no desire to serve him, no desire to come to church. That's the people he came for. And when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins in full. And he rose, on the third day, he rose again from the grave to prove that he is God. That everything he said is, is true and he ascended on high to the right hand of the Father. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. So cast yourself unto him. Throw yourself unto him. Look to Christ. Don't try to say, okay, from now on I'm going to really love the church. You can't. You can't do it. Christ must come. Christ must change you. Christ must replace this heart of stone and give, make it sensitive again. Make it humble. And that's the good news. He can. We love because he first loved us. That's where it begins. With coming to Christ, accepting his love for you. So you don't have to prove yourself to him. You don't have to try to clean yourself up before you can come to him. You can just come. And he will make you new. So Christ is a solution both for a cold heart and a dead heart. He's the solution for both. Before we move on to the second point, let me just answer two common objections. I think many people use today, Christians and sometimes non-Christians, use to say why they don't want to come to church or why they say they don't need to come to church. And here's the first. It's the first objection to this idea that we need to be together and it's simply this, that we are the church. It's actually a very good objection. You might have heard this many, many times. But doesn't the Bible say that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Doesn't the Bible say that I am the church? So why should I go to the church if I am the church? I don't need the church. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe you've used it before. <laughs> and I suspect that is probably one of the biggest reasons today why people don't want to come to church is they think they are the church. And that's enough. So we have a radical individualism that has made us islands. And anyone that steps on this island gets prosecuted. And anyone that says more people must be on this island is infringing on our rights. But this, unfortunately, I have not considered the whole Bible's teaching about the church. You see, so that is one aspect of it, that the church is not a building. It's people, Right? But the biggest reason why this objection fails is as you consider the whole Bible's teaching on the metaphors of the church, you quickly realize that the church cannot be something you can do on your own. 
You cannot do it. So here's a few of the metaphors the Bible uses, and all of them shows and implies the plurality of the church, the corporate nature of the church. Here's the first one. The church is a flock. The church is a flock with human shepherds and with Christ as the chief shepherd. Jesus gave his church pastors and elders to shepherd his flock, to watch over their souls. A flock are many sheep moving together, grazing together. And if one of them flees and runs, the shepherd leaves, the 99 goes and fetch him. But where does he bring him? He brings him back to where the 99 were. You can't be a flock on your own. So you need the other sheep to be a flock. That's, that's the first metaphor. Second metaphor is the church is also called a body. A body with many members and with Christ as the head. So listen to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of one another. Early in verse 21, it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Simply put, one individual Christian who is like an eye or a finger or an ear or cannot, cannot be a body on its own. Can you imagine the finger trying that? I'm going to do the speaking, the talking, and he's probably not saying that because he doesn't have a mouth to do that. But I'm going to do the speaking, I'm going to do the walking, I'm going to do the crawling, I'm going to do the listening, I'll do everything. That's, that's insane. Cheers, guys. I am independent. If you cannot say amen, you have to say ouch. Okay, remember that. So the church is a body, but here's the third metaphor. The church is also a family. It's a family with Christ as our elder brother and God as our father. That's one of the, why the, why, uh, one of the qualifications to be a pastor in God's church is that you must be a good family man. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 3, verse 4 to 5. It says, a pastor must manage his own family well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own family, how will he take care of God's family, God's church? You see the implication there? If a man cannot even manage this little church at home, the little flock at home, the little family at home, how will he ever take care of God's flock, God's family, God's church? The church is God's family with younger men as brothers, younger sisters as younger women as sisters, older men as our fathers, older women like our mothers. We are siblings. We belong to one another. And here's the obvious implication of that. You cannot be a family on your own. You need at least two people, right? You need other people to make a family. And so you need other Christians to be God's family, to be part of God's family. And here's the last one, the last one. The church is also a temple, a temple with Christ as the cornerstone and with every person as individual stones put together to build one building. Ephesians 2 verse 20 to 21, it says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christ is the cornerstone. He gives the stability and the shape of the whole structure. And then each one of us, every Christian, is like one block, one stone that God chooses and place carefully in His church to make one whole beautiful temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. So beloved, in short, 
we need each other. We need the flesh and blood, physical gathering, eyeball to eyeball love. We need this. We need to feel one another singing, loving, praying, sharing. We need this. And I just want to say on a side note, don't even underestimate the amazing habit of faithfully attending. Just coming. While simply coming faithfully, you are already encouraging me as your pastor. It really, really makes me happy when I see you. And if I don't see you, I'm thinking, where is that person? And by faithfully coming, you're, you're telling everybody else, God is important. We are here together. You're encouraging one another by just sitting here as well. So don't underestimate that. Don't underestimate the power of just being together like this. So that's the first objection I hope we've, we've covered. Here's the second one. I, I want to suspect, I think this is another one I've heard a lot and a lot. It says, the church has hurt me. The church has hurt me. I cannot come to church because I, I got hurt so badly. How can I join a group of hypocrites? How can I join that group? So, beloved, when, when we, maybe you're sitting here and you are one of those people who use that, or maybe you've heard other people say that, I want to say the first thing we should not do is to deny that, is to kind of say, no, the church is not like that. You're over-exaggerating. No, the church is kind of, you know, not full of sinners saved by grace. We are these perfect people that never makes mistakes, that never hurts one another. So firstly, don't deny or minimize the hurt. Acknowledge it. Those feelings of pain are deep, real, and the scars often have a lasting effect of churches hurting you. So, but with that said, with, while we acknowledge the pain and the hurt, there's an obvious answer to this objection. Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the key. The assumption in this verse is that we will hurt one another. It's a given. It's assumed. That's why it's commanded that we should do this. If we would never hurt each other, if that was not part of the normal experience of church, God would have never said, please forgive one another. I'm commanding you to be patient with one another. And that's why I always say, and I'll say it again, if we haven't hurt you yet, give us more time. Just give us more time. We will do it. I will do it. But we have an answer for this. We have, a, we have a way to deal with this hurt. We don't have to let the hurt isolate us and take us away from the blessing of being part of the church. God wants us, and when someone hurts us in church, it's actually an amazing opportunity to forgive that person and to be like God, who forgives us over and over and over and over again. Okay, wait, but how many times should I forgive? Can we say seven times? Is seven times a good number that we can say, okay, if that church does this, does it the eighth time, I'm done. We're cutting off this relationship. We are over. Does that sound familiar, the seven times? Well, that's exactly what Peter said to Jesus. Listen to Matthew 18, verse 21. It says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how, you can almost feel his, his frustration here. How often? 
Well, my brother sinned against me and I forgive him. Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. I actually like Luke's version, 77 times a day. Okay, tomorrow it starts over. And the day after that, it starts over. So what's the point? Not count the number of forgiveness. It's unlimited. Because isn't that the way God forgives us? Isn't that the way God treats us? Isn't, isn't God's grace over us just unlimited? Where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So shall we give anything less to our sister, our brother who has hurt us when God has given us infinite forgiveness? May it never be. In fact, so important is it. Remember, that's the only thing Jesus comments on on the end of the Lord's Prayer. If you do not forgive others their sins and their trespasses, God will not forgive you your trespasses. That's why Christianity is hard. That's why it's impossible. Jesus says, come, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Die, die to yourself, die to your pride, die to the pain that you feel. Stop hiding behind your hurt as an excuse. Die and come and forgive and find life. It's a call to follow Jesus no matter how painful it is, no matter how difficult it is to follow him. Beloved, church is difficult for a reason. How will you ever become more like Christ if there are no people in the church who offend you, who hurt you? How will you ever learn to be like as patient as Jesus is if there's nobody in the church that tests your patience? So don't walk away from God's means of making you more like Christ, of shaping you and forming you, even in the uncomfortable and difficult place called church. And the key here is to meditate first on the amazing grace God has given you over your billions of sins, over your endless number of sins. Begin there, meditate, drink deeply of God's grace and you will have the power to forgive anyone anything. So those are just two objections I wanted to help us think about the inst- why we shouldn't use. And there's probably many more we can look at, and, but I, I think those two are very influential But I hope we can echo the words of David. I was glad when they said, let us go, because it's important. Um, Let's close our time with the second point, and we'll be brief. We'll be brief here in the second point. So now we've we've seen the joy of going, but also the joy of arriving, the joy of arriving home. Look at verse 2. It says, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Do you see what happened in between verse 1 and 2? So verse 1 It's the journey towards Jerusalem. And in verse 2, now they're standing at the gate. So verses 1 and 2 is the entire pilgrimage summarized. Verse 1 and 2 is the entire journey from going to arriving. And both the going and the arriving, there is great joy. Now try to put yourself in the the shoes of these pilgrims who who had to go through a lot of suffering, a lot of trials, a lot of stress on their way to to, to Jerusalem. And when they're standing at the gates and they're looking back over their journey and they say, we have made it. We are safe. You know, all the, all the sufferings, all the trials, all the things we had to go through, it's like nothing now because we are here. We are home. We've arrived. But I think there's a sense in which we can take an entire life's journey summarized in one week. So Monday comes, we wake up. We know that there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of suffering and trials and 
We have to struggle and strive and sweat and work and be constantly disappointed over and over again. We have to deal with conflicts. We have to deal with people. We have to deal with our own sin. And it's just an up and down the whole week. It's difficult. We feel pain. We feel hurt. And we are dealing with many things that's outside of our control. But then the sun sets on Saturday night. We prepare ourselves for Sunday. The week is past. The work is done. And then we see the sunrise of a Sunday morning. We think of Jesus' resurrection. We see as like the sunrise making all things new. So Jesus, when he rose, is making all things new. Of which we are the first fruits. We, the church, are like a small foretaste of heaven itself. Because the first part of his new creation is you and me. Behold, those who are in Christ are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. So church is a mini foretaste of what heaven will be like. People from different tribes and tongues and nations gathering around the same king, bowing low before the king of kings and worshiping him and resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And that refreshes us and renews us and strengthens us for another week's hard work, another hard work of week of going through difficulties. But beloved, one day, the small foretaste will give way to the real thing, to the real new heavens and the new earth. Imagine standing at the gates of heaven itself. Imagine looking back and saying like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Yes, I've suffered a lot. Yes, I've bled. I have shed many tears on this road, on this long journey, but I made it. I'm home. Imagine seeing Jesus in person, making all things new, wiping away the very tears from your eyes, seeing how he makes a new heaven, a new earth, on which we will live forever and ever in new bodies, without pain, without suffering, without crying, and the new Jerusalem coming down like a bridegroom, prepared for, like a bride prepared for the bridegroom. And we will say, all that suffering was worth it. Was worth it. It's not just worth it. It was like, it's now like nothing to me. It doesn't even compare to be here where I am now. We are standing on the horizon of an eternal sunrise where Jesus is making all things new and we will be with God forever and ever in ever-increasing joy, always discovering new joys and reasons to be with God. So on this journey, while we are waiting, there's many pit stops we need to make. And that we should make that weekly <laughs> on a Sunday. We need these pit stops to strengthen us and help us on the longer journey of our way to Jesus. We need all the help we can get. Amen? So beloved, I, I hope we can learn to say with David, I was glad when they said to me, let us go. To the house of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, when we look at your word and we look into the mirror of your word and we look at our own hearts, we see how often and how far we fall short of this ideal of being glad and being joyful and excited to be with your people, to be in your presence for refreshment, for 
for hope. Lord, please forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our laziness covered up with excuses. Please give us a clean heart and give us a new heart to follow Jesus no matter the cost, no matter the pain. We would count it all as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ and being with him forever and ever. Lord, nothing compares to that. Nothing will ever compare to that. So please, Lord, help us. Help us to follow you and to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.